0: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Today, I'm delighted to welcome back one of The Shift's very first guests, journalist and mental health campaigner, Bryony Gordon. Bryony's been a columnist on The Telegraph for over 20 years, and for 10 of those, she's been writing candidly about her own experiences of addiction and mental illness. She's the best-selling author of Mad Girl and The Wrong Knickers, and in 2016, she founded Mental Health Mates, a global peer support network that encourages people with mental health issues to connect, for which she's won dozens of awards. She also, for what it's worth, ran the London Marathon in her knickers. Three years after her first visit to the shift, Bryony is back, older, wiser, apparently, and with a new book, the pertinently titled Mad Woman, which discusses her struggles with burnout, binge eating and, you guessed it, fluctuating hormones.
1: I'm not a mad woman. The way I've responded in life to things is totally appropriate. But, you know, we live in a society that is not set up for 51% of its fucking inhabitants.
0: Bryony joined me from bed in South London to talk about maintaining a public facade when you're privately falling apart, finally learning to feed herself properly at 43, hands up who identifies, Discovering all the women in her family went into menopause in their early 40s. Why she's done with feeling like she's the problem. And how Davina McCall saved her life. When I was just reading Mad Woman, I was just thinking, do you know what, it never fails to astonish me how much people are achieving from the outside, where well, they're going through all that shit on the inside. Mm. And I just, I just want to say to you that from in, you were going through all of that, but in outside, you were just being Bryony and doing all that work and, Thank you, you know, just things. The stuff that people, you women, <laughs> pull off publicly. <laughs> Every day. Like, oh, sorry. Let me to upset you for no, 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 no. You <laughs> haven't upset
1: me. <laughs> no, it's nice. It's nice. They're good tears. It's weird, isn't it? Like the effort that women have to put in to just kind of like getting up <laughs> and existing. Yeah. yeah,
0: you know your partner Harry is great, mm-hmm. but that bit, you know, I don't. I, I, I mean, we need to be careful not to spoiler because even though it's a memoir, There's the particular, the resolution bit, the bit where you ask him to pick up from school because you really, mm. really can't pick Edie up from school. And he's like, yeah, great, no problem. What time? Where's school? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and how, how old was she then?
1: Like eight or nine or something? I mean, she would have been nine yeah like coming up for 10 so it's it isn't you know I and I but I also like try to take some accountability to that because I do think sometimes I sort of mollycoddle you know like Mm. because we're so stuck in those gender stereotypes whereby like even though I try to resist it and I work really hard to there's still some things that I I have to question sometimes whether I like mollycoddling my husband (laughs)
0: Like, yeah. what do I get out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like I've definitely, the number of women who I would consider totally on it who I hear say things like, oh, I'll just do it myself because I'll do it right. Or, mm. you know, oh, no, I want to cook Christmas lunch. Or, you know, it's like, Sometimes yeah.
1: you just have to let go. You yeah, just sometimes have to it's let go. It's,
0: it's us and sometimes, it, but it's so ingrained, isn't it?
1: But a lot of the time it's them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But totally. Sometimes it's us, but most of the time it's them. You know, but like yeah. it is it is what it is. But I think as long as, as long as you're sort of like acknowledging it and noticing it, I think that's the key. I also think, yeah, that thing about like my mum often says to me, oh, I wish I could clone Harry and, you know, have a version for me. You're so lucky, Bryony. You're so mm. lucky. Because he like occasionally picks Edie up from school and I don't know, like does some of the parenting that he is responsible for himself. I know. My mum will be listening to
0: this, so I don't want to upset her, but she does she does say, sorry mum. She does say to me, Oh, you're so lucky with John. And yeah, I am. I am, but
1: but also, John, John's lucky with you. Totally. You know, that's the thing. Totally. It's that assumption, isn't it? Yeah, like like my mum will sometimes, like, I lo- you know, I love my mum and she'll probably listen to this too, Sam. And she'll be like, um, she'll be like, oh, poor Harry. Like, she'll come around and say, poor Harry. I'm like, why? What, having to well, put up with you? Or yeah, of- <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. oh, yeah. you, you, w- you won't let him go out to the pub on the lash. I mean, I'm using the word lash. She doesn't use the word lash. No. You know, and I'm like, it's not that I won't let him it's just that we've got other plans you know that he's failed to factor into the to his diary it's not you know I'm not you know oh he needs to unwind what because he's married to me like you know
0: there's a point in in mad woman where you talk quite early on about how the internet likes nothing more than a woman over 16 living her best life and do you and you know from outside you were really good at that Oh, like what oh living my best life. On Are you living your best life on Instagram, which is not necessarily the same thing, is it?
1: Well, I think I'm I'm a sort of a fairly upbeat person on Instagram, but I I'm not living my best life in like an Instagram influencer-y way. Like I am a size 20, I am I don't use filters, I don't necessarily wear makeup that often. I'm not like nothing is very planned on my Instagram. It's all sort of as it comes. So I suppose I live my best life in that I try to show people that uh, you can do things. You can put on a bikini if you're not, if you're under a size 16, you can, uh, sorry, if you're over a size 16, you can still do that. Um, I suppose to try to show that I'm comfortable in my body because by and large I am, you know? So yeah, I I... I try and, but I also try and put up the neck. like when I'm feeling crap, I try to put that up as well, because I think that's really important, you know, but I don't know if I always succeed. And and there, I suppose as this book kind of shows is that there are times when I haven't, it's almost like I haven't even known that I've been that low at the time. I just kind of in that, that depression, sort of, you end up gaslighting yourself and you're like, I'm not depressed. I'm just being a dickhead. And I think that was where I found myself in the last couple of years. Like, even though I knew all this stuff about mental illness and mental health and had spoken a lot about it, it's still, when you go back into it, you don't necessarily realise it's happening to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was really
0: struck by that disconnect between, I mean, I'm always really interested in that kind of disconnect between our public and private selves, but I was really interested in that disconnect between public Bryony, the mental health campaigner, the kind of person that other people turn to for support and help. Meanwhile, you know, inside
1: it's, I don't want to say falling apart, but you kind of almost were. I really was. I really was actually. And I, because I was doing that work, I was like, I can't fall apart because now I'm the person that people look to. And they look to me, they look to me to inspire and show that it's possible to live, you know, well with a history of mental health issues. Also, I think we like a neat narrative, don't we? We like a neat narrative of like, oh, this girl, this woman, sorry, had this experience and then she kind of triumphed over it and wrote a book showing us how she triumphed over it. And now, and then she lived happily ever after. That narrative is so like built in to my, you know, even to my life that I was like, I can't, you know, also I didn't, I didn't really want to show like I, Again, I didn't have the wherewithal to show people that I was depressed because I didn't know I was depressed. I just thought I was being a dickhead. And that's that your inner voice that you called, called
0: Jareth the Godli- Goblin King. And every time I read that, up pops David Bowie.
1: It's like... <laughs> A nice way to keep David Bowie alive. Yeah. Poor guy, forever trapped in those tights. It's like- yeah, I know, I know. But like, also in, in this book, he's joined by like some new adversaries, which yeah. I think really, he really enjoyed creating. You're such an '80s kid, honestly. The Stay
0: Puff. So the Stay Puff Marshmallow Woman. Tell us a bit about how the binge eating, well, it's not, I was gonna say how, tell us about how the binge eating recurred, but really it's more disordered eating that recurred, isn't it? Because it's not so much the binge eating that had had happened before.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it was really interesting. So in my twenties and my late teens was bulimic. And I've written about that in the past. And then I did quite a lot of work on myself to kind of heal that part of me and that part of like wanting to, you know, needing to shrink myself to um, be acceptable, you know, and I'd, and I was very open about that, you know, like, and I, and and I'd I'd run a marathon in my pants and I'd like really, I'd really gone, actually, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not judging myself by figures on a scale but as we know as we know eating disorders aren't actually you know weight is obviously part of it but mostly it's about control it's about exerting control over your life and so I had sort of like vanquished the bulimia and then I'd got sober and you know and I was and then the pandemic rolled along and I was like the world was sort of falling apart and I was just really relieved. I was sober. I was like two and a half years sober when the first lockdown happened, and I just kept thinking, "Oh my god, if I was still drinking, this would be terrible." Like, I just I would just have, if I if I was still drinking, I don't know if I'd still be alive. Do you know what I mean? But like, I certainly don't know if I would have survived those kind of weird twilight days where. We didn't know what was going on, and we were locked down. I mean, we had no control, did we, over anything at that point? Absolutely none. And and you know, and I thought I was coping really well. And I think again, on the outside, people like people were turning to me, Sam, because like I I was like, what was so interesting was that I found that during during the lockdown, that lots of people who had experienced mental health crisis actually coped quite well with it because they were kind of. Like they're like, well, listen, I, you know, uh, uh, this is what my head is like every day. And there was this almost not relief, obviously, because it was a terrible time. But like, well, this is what it feels like the whole time for me. you know. And their anxiety actually got, you know, got better, for want of a better word. You know, and I certainly experienced that where because I'd been through some crises before in my life where I'd had breakdowns and I'd ended up in rehab and I'd been public about it. People were like coming to me. The way I was sort of coping with it was I was... I found, and I can't even like pinpoint, I couldn't tell you like an exact date that it happened, but I was like eating. I was like overeating. And I was very specifically overeating in the dead of night. And so it really had that sort of like ring of, it, it sort of reminded me of the last days of my drinking in a way. And because it was so like, it was like I was eating like raw sausages. There was the kind of the shame of the eating more than I was like physically comfortable with, but just unable to stop, like just more, more, more. But then there was like the added shame. I was like, most people when they like comfort eat, you know, and like this was, this was beyond comfort eating. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm, no it was discomfort eating that phrase was doing a lot of heavy lifting you know i was like yeah they they like they're like chocolate or whatever but i was i was like it was cooking chorizo it was those cooking chorizo sausages i don't want to make light of it but i'm
0: sorry how middle class of you to be like binge eating chorizo no i
1: know but they were like they were like not they were like
0: no they're uncooked so it's not nice
1: Sainsbury's cooking no they weren't like they were like yeah no it was quite middle class but like i've always (laughs) And it sort of suddenly sprung to me. I suddenly remembered. And this was like something that I had not thought about. I was like eight or nine. I suddenly remembered that when I was a child, I would eat, secretly eat uh, the, the packets of Hertha Frankfurters that my mum would buy and keep in the fridge. And it was like this whole and I suddenly was like, oh my God. And I used to like hide the packets in my room. And it was like this thing. And I almost can like feel like I, I can like taste them, you know. This all kind of came up. And I and I realized then at the eating and I was... The weird thing was, it was in tandem. I was like researching this book called No Such Thing as Normal, which was all about... It was all about sort of all of the things I've learned about mental wellness from mental illness. And I was interviewing a lot of experts in the field to sort of try and create a sort of, you know, information on how to access mental health care. Anyway, and I was interviewing this expert in eating disorders and she started talking about binge eating disorder and how it had actually more people suffered from it, bulimia and anorexia combined. And it was actually the most common eating disorder. Uh, And yet it never really gets acknowledged. And she was like, can you, you know, it would be great if you could acknowledge this in the book. And I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, that's what is happening. Like, this is what I'm experiencing. And I thought that because I wasn't purging, that somehow made it okay. But it didn't. It was like, really painful and really shameful and really, and had sort of similar, it made me feel similar to how I had had done when I was like drinking, the kind of hangovers almost the next
0: day. Which is almost like you po- you eat so much, you poison your body just the same with, as with drinking, isn't it? Well, do you think you were trying to harm yourself? Or do you think, was it about, in the way that anorexia can be about control, w- were you transferring your urge for alcohol into food do you think or was it di- was it different
1: I think it was like perhaps I mean you know I certainly wouldn't be the first person to get sober to cross addict no of course I'm thinking back now you know like I'm nearly seven years sober now and so when this well done thanks food I think is you know I, I forget we forget that we can use food as a drug basically and it's an incredibly powerful one and and it's incredibly difficult. Once you get yourself into that state with food, it's very difficult to get yourself out of it because it is not like alcohol or drugs. Yeah, you, know, like, you can't step away from it, can you? No. When I got had to get clean and sober, I didn't have to drink alcohol to stay alive. I didn't have to take cocaine to stay alive. I mean, it felt like it, obviously. Yeah, it yeah sober, exactly. You know? yeah. Like, whereas obviously with food... You know, lots of people describe it as like having to take a tiger out for a walk three times a day, you know. That's a brilliant description. It is, isn't it? And you can't abstain, you know, food. You just can't. You know, I'd watch my mum clinging and her friends like clinging with pride to like a can of Diet Coke, you know, and like existing on air, basically, and doing all sorts of diets. And so I felt this like the fact that I just wanted to eat, which is a perfectly normal biological (laughs) response felt somehow shameful, right? So there, so there, you've got this baseline whereby immediately, a ve- what is a very normal desire for nutrition and sustenance becomes somehow wrong, and so then it becomes secretive. And then you know, so sort of like, what I kind of came to the conclusion was that it's a wonder that there are that a it's a wonder that I have ever had periods of normal eating in my yeah, life. Exactly. Yeah. But B, that more women don't, you know, and of course men as well. It's not, I mean, I don't want to but, but don't have these difficulties. And I and I really wanted to kind of blow a bit of a lid on that because I feel like I want to publicly show that as a larger woman, which I am a larger woman, I, I don't want to use things like plus size because I'm my size, you know? That's what I like. I'm well, more... Plus
0: size is implying that you're bigger than norm- normal, whatever normal is. Yeah, it's like plus well, something, isn't it?
1: I'm me and, you know, and I'm, I'm a size 20, you know, and I used to like talk about how much I weighed and I'm like, I'm not, I can't be bothered because it's like, doesn't matter. But like, but like I'm, I'm technically obese, right. Okay. By BMI. And yet I have done, I do, I'm, I'm really active. Do you know what I mean? Like I love, you know, I'm training for like two. Well, the equiv running the equivalent of four marathons in two weeks, right, coming up. But like uh, for me, it's like, oh my god, the more that I tie up like my worth in my weight, the more it's it just like it's just you're on a hiding to nothing. And the other interesting thing was that I learned about you know people go into like they want they want to get cured from binge eating disorder because but only because they want to lose weight because they're so ashamed and actually if you go into anything with that thing of like i'm doing this because i want to lose weight it's never gonna because it's in a place of self-loathing it's from a place of self-loathing do you
0: think you ever knew how to eat normally whatever normal is because i'm not sure
1: i did I don't think, I think I learned things for this training thing I'm doing. So just, I'm running the Brighton Marathon and then I'm going to run from Brighton to London over two weeks and then I'm going to run the London Marathon. And this is to Raise Money for Mental Health Mates, which is this not-for-profit organization I set up maybe 10 years ago to create a safe space for um, people with mental health issues to get together, walk and talk without fear of judgment. But also I want to show that exercise is for everybody and it's not about... Like exercise is not about making yourself smaller or, you know, like it, you know, exercising for the
0: gains and not the losses. But do you think because I'm I'm really interested in this because I think there's I absolutely agree with you, but I also think that one of the things that is happening now is we're not like allowed to say fat shame or Whatever, and we're not allowed to say we want to lose weight. So people say, "Oh, I want to be like if you join a gym or you start going to Pilates or yoga." They're like, "What is your your goals?" And you you feel like you can't say, "Actually, I want to lose seven pounds." You have to say, "I want to be stronger. I want to be leaner. I want to be." And actually, are we just using different language
1: language to say the same thing? Okay, so here's the thing. I think it's really okay if you want to lose weight. It's really normal. It is, you know, it is don't shame yourself because of that. Because I do get a lot of women who come to me and they're like, I know I should be more body positive or body neutral or whatever, but I just find it really hard and I want to be a size 10 or a size 12. And I'm like, yeah, of course. Like that's because, because, because you were bought up in a culture, like you're not you're not built in a day, you know, and it's not unbuilt in a day. I don't think unbuilt is a word, but anyway, it's not, it's not, it's not it's not demolished in a day. Apparently, apparently I'm a writer, Sam. Um, really, but like, so I get it. But like, for me, it's about the goal cannot be weight. The goal has to be balance and health. And then perhaps weight, pro- I mean, weight probably will kind of naturally be a part of that. But if I'm, you know, like if I'm saying I want to be... I don't know eleven stone or whatever, you know, which for some people might be too much. I don't know. I don't care. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like I need to be a size eight or a size ten, and it's like, well, why? Why do you need to be that? Like, you might you might not naturally be that. You know, you just said I want to lose seven pounds, but why? What what will what will losing seven pounds do? Because. I know this because what I was about to say is I've got this proper nutritionist now who is, you know, she's a, she's, she, 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 she trains the Team GB women's hockey team. Right. And it is blowing my mind because she's like, you have to eat this. You have to eat carbs before you go for a long run. Before, and, you know, like I'm eating more carbs than I've ever eaten in my life. And she's like, you know, and there's so much misinformation. Like you could probably lose seven pounds in two days of water weight if we, you know, if we put you on ridiculous like you know if you want to lose seven pounds fine lose seven pounds but what is it actually doing Do you know what I mean? yeah
0: what's well, the point point? and that thing you just said about carbs it's like we spend so much of our lives being told we shouldn't eat carbs at all you know
1: you can't like it's like can i just tell you the game change in like running 12 miles uh having eaten a massive bowl of porridge it's just like is it like, who knew it was a game changer sound know exactly I mean? yeah
0: carbohydrates
1: equal fuel it's like put petrol in, get movement out. It's really wonderful. It's a really, like genuinely, it is about nourishment. It's about fueling your body. But also I have to like, no food is bad, but I. everyone is different. So everyone has their own limits. So like I know now that if I open a tub of Pringles or a McCoy packet of very specific this, but like cheddar and onion McCoys, I will probably want to eat 18 more packets of them, right? Yeah, so everyone has their like thing and that once in a while, that's fine. But knowing my brain and knowing like, it's a bit like alcohol, right? I cannot have one drink. (laughs) So it's better if I don't have any, do you know what I mean? Because it's genuinely easier for me if I don't, you know, if I don't get into, get sucked into that thing. And it's the same with that. Like I've had to learn the foods. Like I'm not saying McCoys are bad, like quite the opposite. I think they're fantastic. But like, for me, it isn't, you know, like I, I just try to avoid it as much as possible because I know where it leads me and where it leads me is into a sort of like, you know, the food equivalent of ending up in a crack den. (laughs) Yeah.
0: the other thing that interests me about the binge eating is that a thing that came up, in fact, again and again, when I was researching the shift, and I've seen it a lot since, is the way that, you know, eating disorders tend to rear their heads in puberty, and then they rear their heads again in perimenopause. And one of the things that, and I was reading Mad Women, and I was kind of watching the process that you were going through. So with your binge eating and with your mental health and Jareth making his comeback and you go, there's, yeah, your menstrual cycle went all weird, which is a kind of a red flag, but then you started talking about energy loss, brain fog, depression, short-term memory, help palpitations, like plummeting confidence, dizziness, sore guns, like totally losing sight of the woman that you had been just I mean, God, not even, as I say a couple of years earlier, like a couple of months earlier. At what point did you start to think, or did somebody else start to think, is, some, is, is perimenopause going on here too?
1: Yeah, so... <laughs> but it's
0: not obvious. You're like laughing and looking embarrassed, but it's not obvious because nobody bloody told us about it, particularly not
1: the mental health stuff. My friend Holly said to me, so I reckon, you know, this was like, she said to me, "You're really low, Brynne. Do you think you're depressed?" And I was like, "Of course, I'm depressed. There's a pandemic on. Everyone's yes, depressed." Exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, but you know, she was like, "What about your hormones?" And I genuinely went into this like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Like, like you know, do you, like no, it's not. I'm not getting getting on board some trend. You know, I like, okay. <laughs> if and I could
0: reach like, you, I would punch you. But
1: luckily for you, got, you're on the screen. <laughs> but no, but that's what I mean. She was like, "Can you hear what you're saying?" you know, things like that in itself, Sam, was like a symptom of how neggy I was, you know, and how like, you know, I always think if I have that kind of reaction to something, it's not about the thing. It's like, why am I reacting to it that viscerally, you know? And, but it was also because I was just, I was really low. I was really depressed. I was just, I couldn't accept that. You know, I was like, it's just I'm a faulty human being. Do you know what I mean? And I couldn't accept that it was like, so I don't, you know, so that was what I said. And I'm only being honest, you know. And I called up my mum and I was like, Mum, when did you go through menopause? And she was just like, How dare you talk to me about such a thing? Like, <laughs> she was like, I didn't go through menopause. I'm like, What? You're still having periods? And she was like, I don't want to talk about this. And like, put the phone down. Oh, bless. And then, you know, and then she called me back, uh, you know, a while later and she was like, Listen, about this menopause thing. I had your brother at 40 and then never had a period again. She's probably not going to thank me for like giving her whole gynecological menstrual history. And she was like, and your grandmother went through it in her early 40s. And, you know, and I've heard heard news that other women in our family and I was like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? could have given me like a little heads up (laughs) you know it was almost like I was like we didn't go through that in our day you know and I I do think also I think you know to be fair to my mom I don't think it caused her any problems whatsoever so it was like why would she you know so I think you know but anyway so I was like oh so I went to a doctor and they yeah and how did that work out for you (laughs) <laughs> well spoiler alert I mean, it was genuinely transformational I mean they did all the tests they implied that like the rock had more estrogen in him than I did you know so this wasn't your first visit though
0: this wasn't because didn't you go first to the GP who just told you you need to lose weight yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. like a lot of that you just need to lose weight but it ended up weirdly like because I was having these like I was having these palpitations and these kind of like dizzy fainting spells. not white but they they ended up being fainting spelled but so they'd done these bloods and they were like you've got high platelets or something so and they were just really casually like so you need to go to hospital and have an x-ray of your lungs and a mammogram to check that you don't have lung cancer or uh breast cancer or bowel cancer and I was like what the hell like this was this was not why I came to you like <laughs> sure, yeah. so that was quite frightening and then yeah so there was all this weird stuff going on and then my friend said go go and see this menopause doctor so I did and she was like we can just try you on HRT and I was kind of terrified of it right because so
0: basically sorry to go back but you said basically you had to go private yeah
1: yeah 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 mm. yeah. Yeah, me, yeah. yeah. me too yeah yeah I did and she said let's try some HRT and I was terrified because obviously I'd also come of age hearing about all that sort of all the breast know, cancer stuff breast yeah that anyway she said, look, we can just try it. And if it makes a difference, you should be you should have reasonable levels of, HR, of, of estrogen in your body anyway, because you're 41. So it's not, you know, anyway, she said, it might take a while to notice the difference. And I started on it. And no word of a lie. Within three days, it was like I was me again. You have a
0: progesterone intolerance, don't you? Which is a thing. That I'm not sure what percentage of women
1: have it. It's quite a small number, isn't it? Like but one in twenty or something. Big enough number, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. still. And so, what was it over the months? And we tried to get progesterone into me in different ways because you have to, you know, you have mm. to have it in the other womb. What the doctor sort of came, was like, you, 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 yeah, you seem to have progesterone intolerance. And it was really interesting because when I was like 21, I'd gone on the pill, and I'd come off it pretty quickly because it was just. Disgu- disgusting the effect it had on my mood, and I can now I now can see why. Right? Yeah, but, totally.
0: Yeah, and I think people will be in, they'll be interested in their kind of the different experiences because I've, I mean, I, you know how many women I've spoken to at this life stage about various things, and I have never encountered anyone who's talked about the progesterone
1: thing. So I think it's really interesting. I was really terrified because because they said, listen, the, the coil tends to help people with this and I could not work out how having the progesterone constantly yeah it's counterintuitive isn't it and you know they said to me look it will it may be bumpy for three months but it will then it will it will get it will sort of the the symptoms tend to go then because your body gets used to it and I was like okay three months is a hell of a long time on top of everything else I was terrified. I was terrified because it was it was just awful. But I was like at least if I know it's going to be 3 months I can prep. I can be like it's, you know, almost like prison counting down the days. Yeah. And so I the coil I got the coil put in and I was like I was like on a red alert and I was like it's been 2 hours and I haven't gone mad. It's been 4 hours it's been 3 days and then but then it was so weird like I really trust this because my body. So I've been having these these fainting things that I'd never really got any explanation from. And I just had assumed was menopause once I'd, but the, uh, the, I'd started fainting because of these dizzy spells and these palpitations. And my husband was like, you have to go to the doctor. And so about a week and a half, two weeks after I had the coil in, I was booked in to, to get an ECG for this. Sense. And and I, they had, it, it sort of, I went into the palpitations while I was in the ECG and they were like, are you okay? And I was like, I think so. No, like you're not, you're in atrial fibrillation. We have to send you to hospitals. <laughs> I got diagnosed with an arrhythmia, which I, they were like, you've probably always had. <laughs> I was like, what? And I just my whole life sort of like dismissed it. You know, people had said to me, like, I'd always had palpitations. Do you know what I mean? But I was, so it was stress me being a hysterical woman or something. And the doctor the, the guy was like, no, no, you've got an arrhythmia. And, and I was like, what? You know, what's caused it? Is it hormones? Is it stress? They were like, no, it won't have been caused by that. It's like, because it's like an actual bit of my heart beat. You know, it can go into it where it beats just electrically different. Anyway, but I was like, oh my God, my whole life. Like I just, my natural response as a woman is to go, oh, I'm just being silly. <laughs> Like all of this stuff I really believe happened at the same time for me to go, enough, enough, enough. Like I'm not taking myself seriously. I'm not a mad woman. The way I've responded in life to things is totally appropriate. But, you know, we live in a society that is not set up for 51% of its fucking inhabitants.
0: No, I know. I know. And menopause is like, I think so many things happen around menopause that really make you, it's like the blinkers fall off in a way you stop you've been trying to fit yourself into the boxes that have been provided for you or this is how I felt for years and years and then all of a sudden you get to menopause you know what the fucking hell is going on you can't get any help or you can only get help if you can afford to pay for it and then you get through it and you're like I'm not putting up with that shit
1: anymore there's a sort of witchy magic to it I think like I do think that the stuff it brings up is like your body or your brain saying, are you going to deal with this now? Because, you know, and you like you can't keep, you cannot, as you say, like keep trying to fit yourself in this box that has not been in any way, like no one who has carved this box has even considered your existence. So why the fuck are you trying to bend yourself into all sorts of different ways? and squeeze into it and please the person that carved it because like they don't give a shit about you. And that was my thing. It's like, i spent my whole life masking parts of myself, you know, and trying to be things that are, and that was my way of surviving. My way of surviving was like, I will drink myself or drug myself or whatever into a person I, you know, that I should be, I, I will eat myself myself you know, to, to, to start, until I become a sort of um, compliant person who is not at all upset by or not at all bothered by this like massive pandemic thing that's happening and is, is scary and it would be totally fine if you were bothered by it. But, you know, because the world was like, no, you've, you've got to realize how lucky you are, you know, and all of that. And I was like, I can't feel anything other than like gratitude. You know, like my whole life has been about, Trying to kind of people please, really people please, and to what end? You know, to the end, it's you know, it lands me in rehab or it lands me in hospital with a having to get to the point where they're like, you've got a heart condition. It's actually, I'm not mad. I'm 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 perfectly. I'm I'm responding perfectly appropriately to the world.
0: Also, mad has another meaning, doesn't it? Which is like, I'm absolutely bloody
1: mad with rage actually sam i hadn't thought about that but then that's a really good point yeah and i am and i was and last year it was like oh there was some oh there was some incredible shifts soul shifts that went on you know that i i was like not not doing it anymore not like no no longer not doing this and it's really interesting, actually, because the second half of the year, when I was writing this book, I sort of went back into that headspace a bit. Because writing a book, writing a book is a bit like method acting. I think, imagine. I don't know. I'm I'm not an actor, but you go back into it. And so I got to like Christmas, and I was like, "What right have I to write this book? This is this is all like I'm I'm a terrible human. I'm a piece of shit. This book is going to fail." It's my career's over. And I was like, oh, hi, Bryony. There we go again. (laughs) Like also, you know what, Sam? I've got to the point where I'm like, okay, if it does quote unquote fail or whatever, fine. What does fail even mean? Says who? By whose standards? Well, this is the thing. I was like, I'm just not. That's why I was like, oh, look, there I go again. Like try to dance to the beat of someone else's drum. And I'm like, just I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. And that's it. That's it really. So that's fine. It's all good. I mean, it's good. Like it's, it's good enough. Also this whole process for me has been a bit like, well, yeah, I am actually a bit bad sometimes. And you know what? That's fucking fine because I'm a human, you know, like, and I don't want to live up to these ridiculous standards, which I like which are like, I have to be perfect. Like, no, I don't. No, I don't. You know, it's like the closest thing you can get to perfection is like embracing your flaws, you know? And I hope that's what I've done with Madwoman. And I just, you know, it was even like accepting that like even OCD, even Jareth, he was there. <laughs> Sound completely mad. But like, you know, that wasn't OCD was like a create something my brain created to try and Protect me when I was a child and sort of lovingly. I think it's all, you know, I heard this phrase like in psychotherapy, it's like integrating every part of you as opposed to dismissing the parts that we don't like. Like, I'm just going to get rid of them. It's like, actually, no, being like at one and comfortable with those parts, you know, and I'm still, you know, can get obsessive and low and. Think I'm being a dickhead or, you know, obsess over why someone hasn't replied to a message or something or, you know, and like literally all of that stuff. And that's okay because it's just like, it's life, you know, it's our life. And like I heard this yesterday someone said, you know, life is full of roses and life is full of thorns. Some of us just find it really hard to accept the thorns. I feel like I'm one of those people. And that's okay. So I'm just like, oh yeah, here's some thorns. Oh, I'm not that great with them, but that's okay. I will just learn to kind of like, they might prick my skin, but I won't die because of the thorns. You know? Yeah, the thorns aren't personal. They haven't come for you. No, they haven't nobody. come for Bryony. No, I have to. I have to remember that. Like, I I don't know about you, Sam, but I can take things deeply personally. Mm. Yeah, and that, very thin skin. That was definitely one of the first kind of like symptoms, I think, of perimenopause for me. But I'm kind of through it now, you know, like I I haven't had a period for a year, I don't think. Yeah, I'm like really grateful. And like my friends who are my age are like, oh, I'm feeling a bit low. Do you think? And I'm like, yes, I do think. Whatever you're about to say, yes, I do think it. Good,
0: I'm glad. The Bryony that was on the shift when the shift first started um, and the Bryony that I'd always known was like, I wouldn't say cynical was your middle name, but you were a bit like if anybody had done, had even like waved a self, and I say I'm the same, okay. But if anybody had waved a self-help book, even in your vague vicinity, you'd have gone, take your woo and shove it up your woo. And here you are like Fully embracing the woo-woo. And in fact, do you know what? So many midlife women who suddenly find themselves doing it. Tell me about that because I literally can't imagine you binging on self-help books. Binging is maybe not the right word in this
1: conversation, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely felt like, okay, so here's another thing I'm in recovery from. So like, I think because I'm a journalist, right? And I spent my entire professional career on newspapers, right? Very, so You have to be very fucking cynical to work on a news work in journalism. And that's important. It's right, you know, it's right that political reporters, news reporters are cynical to hold people in positions of power to account. But it's kind of not what I do, but I, like it rubbed off on me. So there's a kind of principle in 12-step fellowships where it's like you've got to be open-minded. Being cynical is also kind of being quite closed off, Not to go around naively, do you know what I mean? Like, just believe it, you know. Like, I I accept there are people out there who are manipulative and who are, I don't think anyone wakes up and thinks, today I'm going to be a dickhead. Today I'm going to be a nasty piece of work. That's been one of the great gifts of sobriety for me has been, you know, meeting other people who are deeply flawed and who have behaved in ways that they, they themselves are... They wouldn't on any given day ever choose to, you know, people that have been in prison, people that have hurt other people, you know, and I've hurt people with my behavior as a, as an alcoholic, you know, and and what I mean to say is, but they, these are really good people. And you know, they are people in their heart who are, and who have just along the way, you know, they've been in pain and, you know, they've medicated that pain in the only way they know how, and because of that, they've done... Things that aren't, you know, that are not in any way in alignment with their spirits, their souls, whatever. So, anyway, it's a very long winded set. It was a way of saying like my judgments about things have become like I'm much less judgmental. So, self help, I was like, it's rubbish. And then I was like, well, actually, I don't know what happened, but I was like, I realized when I, when I got diagnosed with with this heart condition, I kind of like I came round (laughs) and I was like, I was like, I realize I have to like, it's a matter of life and death almost that I have to look after myself. And I have to almost like my brain has become kind of quite poisoned by depression, by low mood, by negativity or whatever. Sounds really woo woo, but I needed to like, I needed to feed my soul and not my ego state, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? I was in like hypervigilance. I was terrified and I needed to really take myself out of that. And the way that I started to do that was by reading loads of self-help books and doing loads of quite woo-woo things. And I love it. It's helped me. But it's also just helped me understand that I am part of something much, much bigger. You know, at the moment, I'm like rereading Louise Hay like once a month. Oh my God. And I bet you wouldn't have touched Louise Hay with a barge pole, would you? There are still, listen, there are still, there are still bits of Louise Hay where I'm like, I'm afraid on this point we have to, you know, we all have stuff about disease being disease. I'm afraid I'm like on this point we have, I have to, you know, go off in a different direction from you, Louise. But... A lot of the stuff about where she says, like, think good thoughts about yourself, where she says, you know, tell yourself, I approve of myself 400 times a day. And I'm like, what? I can't do that. And she's like, well, you tell yourself 400 times a day that you can't do things. So you can, you know, like you can do that. That's
0: such a good point. You can give yourself negative messages that many times, but saying I approve of myself just feels ridiculous.
1: Just try it. Just Just see how it works out for you. So do you do that? I do. Yeah. When I'm doing like exercise or CrossFit or something, or I'm like, I don't like this. I'm like, I love and approve myself. I love and approve myself.
0: (laughs) Right. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. And you've asked these before. So afterwards I'm going to check and see how different your answers were this time. So uh, what is your emotional age? 43. Do you feel like that's
1: a change? Yes, absolutely. I do too. I'm a capable woman. (laughs) (laughs) My age, you know, like... It can be like sometimes I love to be like a joyous little one-year-old sort of having fun with my family. That's, that's, that's in a good way, not tantrumy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Give us a book recommendation. Women Who Run With The Wolves or I loved,
1: is it Haggitude by... Oh, yeah,
0: Sharon Blackie. Loved that book. She's no. been on. And you know what? When I was reading your book, I was going to recommend Sharon Blackie's books to you. Because I was thinking if you love Women Who Run With The Wolves, I can't imagine that you wouldn't love Haggitude and I, I, When I read, Women Rose Rooted.
1: Yeah, I haven't read When Women Rose Rooted, but uh
0: loved Haggitude. Brilliant. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? You don't need
1: my advice. you, got yeah. <laughs> you just come on. You just get out there and, uh, yeah, you don't need my advice. Who is your old bird role model? I love Dawn French. She's very cool, isn't she? Yeah. She's Uh, one of my fantasy podcast guests. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, Michelle Obama, she's not... I mean, she just turned 60, didn't she? Yeah, she's not old. She's just older than you, which is all that matters, really. And I love Denise Welch. Oh, really? She's my, like, you know, sober uh, inspo. Your sober old bird role model. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, What's your superpower? Uh, My superpower is... Making people feel
0: better—that's nice. And last one: how many fucks do you give? Uh, I—I still give
1: quite a lot of fucks, and that's okay. We're working on the you no. Know, like, hopefully, hopefully, I've got another like forty-three years in me, Sam. So, like, what am I going to work on for those forty-three years? It has yeah. to how fucks I give.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like my conversations with Sharon Blackie and Ruby Wax. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com. And sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more.